The AI Tipping Point podcast is brought to you by Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp, and produced by Government Executive Media Group Studio 2G. Cloud data and other tools have helped to set the stage for artificial intelligence. With 5G, Edge, and other tech on the horizon, 2020 is set to be the biggest year yet for AI. In order to pave the way forward and fully embrace secure, revolutionary AI, government and IT leaders will need to lean on trusted partners and tools. Partners like Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp are here to help, offering guidance, support, and secure solutions for every part of your AI journey. Reach out today to learn more about how they can help your agency realize the full benefits of AI. Welcome to the AI Tipping Point, a podcast from Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G in collaboration with NVIDIA, NetApp, and WWT that aims to answer the question, if 2019 was the tipping point for AI, then what's ahead? I'm your host, Tim Hartman, the CEO of Government Executive Media Group. Today, we're looking to zero in on exactly how IT and government leaders can effectively approach modernization initiatives to accelerate the pace of change and AI adoption in government. I have two guests with me in the studio, both of whom are dedicated to speeding the adoption of AI and other emerging technologies throughout government. Mike Madsen is the Director of Strategic Engagement for the DOD's Defense Innovation Unit, an entity dedicated to strengthening national security by accelerating innovation in government and military adoption of commercial technologies. And Anthony Robbins is the Vice President of Federal at NVIDIA. Both can offer insight on how the right tools and stakeholder buy-in can pave a path to AI adoption. Thank you both for joining me today. Tim, thanks for having us. Tim, thanks for having me. Anthony, let's kick things off with you, especially since recent comments of yours align perfectly with our theme. In a blog post published last year, you mentioned that AI was at a tipping point. Can you speak to what you meant by that and what wins the federal government has seen in the last year in terms of AI? Oh, there's a lot to talk about here. So if you just take the the Pentagon, for example, you have the Strategic Capabilities Office, which is where General Shanahan started. It ends up becoming the Jake, and they have significant funding this year, right? The three star leading the Jake. You have you have the AI Next program with DARPA, two billion dollars of funding over five years for a lot of the work that DARPA has been doing in AI. In fact, you know, four years. In in February or a year ago, you had the President of the United States signs an executive order. You know, they did made a contribution to to ethics you know, and artificial intelligence. NIST is working on standards and governance. And, you know, Mike Kratzios and, and the, uh, the, uh, the Office of Management Budget puts in proposals for R&D spending. And you have RPA Center of Excellence that's occurring in GSA and around civilian agencies and the work that transportation is doing in autonomous systems and on and on and on. And let's not forget that, that of late, there's been four sources who have called on the federal government to invest a um, hundred billion dollars over the next, you know, five to ten years, and so there's there's all of these things that are going on. I think Brendan McCord in his Eye on AI podcast suggested that there was as many as kind of six hundred um, pilots of proof of concepts going on across the Department of Defense. So that's that's in the federal government, right? And of course, you know, you'll hear from Mike on some of the amazing work that they're doing with the innovation community and like. But this is happening around the globe, you know, and so so there's so when we talk about a tipping point, um, I of, of all the transformations I've seen, I've never seen one kind of get this big and go this fast. And of course, there's a chance or there's a requirement 
that it gets bigger and it goes faster. Right, there's really a pervasive uh, amount of applications in the government, there's a pervasive amount of testing that's going on, pilots that we're seeing. Um, so if 2019 was the tipping point, what does it make 2020 then? What is it that we can look forward to in terms of AI in 2020? Well, I, I think we. I think this, this is a giant team sport and General Shanahan said a couple times recently that this is the year of AI and DOD. And so um, other people have said it's the year that we get AI into operations. And so I think we kind of got to move from, from the labs and from the prototypes, if you will, and to, and to get into operations, add value to the mission or better support for citizen services. And I think to the extent that that we in the community, whether it's startup companies or defense industrial base and universities and commercial companies, I think, I think to the extent that we can do really good work together in support of the government's challenges and opportunities here, I think we'll serve this nation very well. So Mike, over to you with the official you know, DOD innovation perspective on this. What is it that we can see on the forefront with AI in DOD? So I'd like to pull on that thread that Anthony mentioned about AI being a team sport, and I 100% agree with that. Part of the mission of DIU is to grow the national security innovation base. And we see the national security innovation base as the evolution of that triangle of academia, industry, and government that really birthed Silicon Valley, and indeed the entire uh, tech ecosystem across the country. So we see that uh, we need to get back and leverage all the fantastic things that are going on in AI in the commercial sector to reinvigorate that triangle of academia, industry, and government. Right now, my sense is that we're better at uh, perhaps explaining and prototyping AI than really uh, deeply understanding and harnessing all of the, the power of AI. Uh, so I think going forward, uh, we need to bring AI to ops at scale. Uh, what that means to me again is leveraging uh, all the work the commercial sector has done, bring that into the department to help solve some of the challenging department problems. That's great. And so uh, what's your perspective on, on bridging that gap? Like, what do the agency leaders or program managers need to do so we start seeing more scalable, tangible results from some of these pilots or some of these concepts? Right, so currently, uh, AI is in a very nascent stage from an operational perspective. Uh, the commercial sector is operationalizing AI from uh, data management to business practices and mapping, and so we want to leverage that and grab that. But look, um, the first step is fully understanding what AI is across the department. Right now, I think there are somewhere upwards of over 500 projects and programs that are labeled AI. Are they, in fact, AIML? Uh, I don't know, because we're still sorting out what that is. The J was stood up as a central uh, body to coordinate all those efforts going on across the department. Uh, we work closely with them. We've, in fact, done a couple projects with them. Um, and a critical part of uh, understanding and leveraging AI is uh, to gather all of the data, to leverage a huge amounts of data required. The department certainly has uh, huge data that they can use for AI. Uh, so I think we need to start with the end in mind. So as we bring new projects and programs online, we need to start with how are we going to bring AI into these programs and projects in the, the out years. 
Things like uh, adding sensors, making it easier to grab data, to cleanse data, uh, to structure the data so that we truly can harness the power of artificial intelligence. Right, so we're at that, at that pivotal moment where people are starting to understand it. We've got pilots, we've got people trying to integrate it. Um, let's go back though to the vision for it. I mean, the, the three to five year plan with AI includes things like what? Like what sort of outcomes or types of programs would be eligible for a really good AI application? Certainly uh, some of the, the near-term ones are leveraging AI for things like predictive maintenance, where we can leverage AI and apply those algorithms to various platforms and get a better sense of what we need to do to increase mission capable rate. We recently concluded a prototype that started with the E3 aircraft in the Air Force, and in a short amount of time and a modest amount of money, we were able to show reportable results of a reduction of unscheduled maintenance by about 30%. So that's pretty powerful when you think about that. You're increasing the mission capable rate of the aircraft and the men and women in uniform. And we thought that was fantastic. So we took that and then we looked at other platforms. You know, we asked what else can we apply this to? So we looked at other aircraft platforms that we could apply that to uh, with uh, degrees of success. And then we took that to the Army and awarded a prototype contract to apply predictive maintenance to the Bradley fighting vehicle. Uh, now we're looking at what other applications are out there for the wheeled vehicles. Again, to make sure that we're providing the men and women in uniform uh, fully mission-capable uh, pieces of equipment as they execute their mission. Uh, and so if you think of it in that respect, it, it's really a, a transformative capability that we're bringing to the department that we can scale across services and platforms. That's one great example for it. Another one that we're using artificial intelligence for is uh, to increase the efficiency of that human-machine interface. So we're prototyping a project right now in the humanitarian assistance disaster relief area, where we're taking overhead imagery and we're applying AI ML algorithms to be able to more quickly determine uh, where survivors would be, uh, how we need to get supplies out to survivors of natural disasters more quickly. Uh, and there are also clear applications uh, for that for other mission sets of the department. That's fascinating. It's an area I hadn't really thought a lot about in terms of just disaster assistance and humanitarian assistance. It's, a, it's an interesting area. Back to the maintenance example that you gave us, I think the, um, the interesting thing about the numbers that you just gave is it almost makes the business case very simple because you're talking about real cost savings or, or real uptime savings. Um, you know, versus something that needs a, a large investment up front and takes a long time to pay off. Is that part of the reason that those projects can get off the ground earlier? Uh, that's absolutely right. If you look at a program, uh, especially for a major weapon system, the cost, the initial cost for the product is one thing, but then the sustainment tail is quite significant. So if AI is scaled across the department on every program, especially as I described before, where we start building those with that AI in mind, uh, the savings can run into the billions of dollars in sustainment savings. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite an amazing use case, right? And so Ellen Lord had, has signaled you know, a while back that this was an important um, opportunity. Will Roper, before his current position, was signaling that platform sustainment is an important opportunity. Um, Mike will know better than I, but I, I think there's like 500,000 assets that are across the Department of Defense that, that might be candidates for kind of this platform, predictive and preventative maintenance kind of play. Uh, many of these platforms were, you know, fielded. Some of them were fielded a decade ago. Some of them were designed th 20 years ago. And, and so what you have is, is and then you have 
modern technology or digital transformation that has occurred since these platforms were fielded. And, and so, and then, and then there's also some common themes about the amount of data that's associated with many of these platforms. And then, you know, compelling requirements, right? You know, the ability to drive either down the cost or spend more money more effectively. So I think it's a terrific use case. Um, and, and, I, and, and it actually is the whole of government. So the Postal Service has this exact same challenge, right? NASA has pieces of the same challenge. So civilian agencies, the Department of Defense as well. That's right. And to build on that a little bit, that's one of the benefits of using the E3 aircraft. It's a very old platform. And so we had a lot of data, but it was handwritten maintenance logs by pilots and maintenance folks. So it was not easily digestible. So our prototype was able to not only demonstrate the efficiency and the effectiveness of the algorithms themselves, but also the ability to take unstructured data and be able to structure it and use it and adjust it and, and get a, an outcome that was desired. And, and uh, Anthony, your other point is exactly spot on. We want to scale not just across the department, but if this can be something that uh, goes across other departments with the same problem, we absolutely want to be able to leverage prototypes for that. Yeah, I mean, just the scale of government overall makes it a candidate for almost any kind of commercial application that's happening. Is I think that's what's fascinating about government. Even if you look outside of defense, in particular, you've got healthcare. You know, you've got um, agencies doing things that basically operate as a Fortune fifty business. So anything would be applicable to a business, whether it's analytics or automation, would also be eligible there as well. Yeah, and and even yes, you know, as Mike said earlier on humanitarian assistance, disaster relief. That, that's a global challenge, right? Our, our U.S. Department of Defense plays a big role there, as do other civilian agencies. But, you know, if there's tsunamis or natural disasters that we have to respond to anywhere around the world. So, you know, many, many countries and nations, you know, are, are looking at this. In fact, I think the Jake has recently had some engagement with Singapore, if I'm not mistaken. Right. So there's there's just a lot of opportunity here. You know, we've had to respond to wildfires recently, you know, you know, uh, hurricanes kind of before that. So there's great opportunities to apply AI to, to that use case. Are there other use cases that that you'd like to raise, Anthony, that around the DOD? Yeah, yeah, really? I, yeah, I think there's 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 two or three that are worth mentioning. So robotics. You know, artificial intelligence is going to play a huge role in robotics. And so if you think about that, that could be from the work that the Postal Service does to work that NASA is doing across civilian agencies and, and, and of course, in, inside the Department of Defense. Autonomous systems of almost, you know, every kind and every sort. So uh, robotics, autonomous systems. And an obvious one that gets talked about a lot, where I think, frankly, we have a lot of work to do, is in the area of cybersecurity. You know, and so we have, you know, so the government is blessed with vast troves of data. And, and of course that is true as it relates to the data traversing their networks, you know, big and complex networks. And, you know, here comes 5G and we'll go from hundreds of millions to billions to trillions of devices, uh, creating data and challenging, you know, our networks. I think uh, Vice Admiral Norton had, had recently stated that they had 1.5 billion events on their networks a day. You're right. And so then if you think about the networks getting, you know, five to 10 times faster and the number of devices. So cybersecurity is a big challenge for, of course, the department, uh, the federal government and our country. Right. And, and I think uh, artificial intelligence is going to play a significant role with, with respect to, to cyber. So, Mike, what um, challenges do you see government facing in 
the adoption curve. You know, and you, we're here, we've got some awareness, it's an administration priority, we've got pilots going on. Um, what would you pinpoint as the largest challenge the government faces in adopting AI, but even just any transformational technology? Well, as I've said uh, several times, the department doesn't have an innovation problem, it's an innovation adoption problem. And that adoption problem can be process-related or culture-related. Um, and I'd like to back up just a second and uh, set a quick uh, story on when I became interested in digital modernization. Um, I was in the Air Force uh, for a while before I got involved in acquisition reform in DIU. Uh, I was a C-17 pilot back in the year 2000, and it's the world's most advanced airlifter. It's an amazing airplane, all digital, uh, complete glass cockpit, uh, in fact, everything is computer controlled. The engines are computer controlled, fuel systems, environmental, everything is digitized essentially. And there was a condition that was so prevalent that there was actually a name for it. It was called an exceptional restart. And what would happen is you'd be flying along, executing a mission, and the whole aircraft would go dark, and it would revert to manual backup on all the systems. And the reason was because in the year 2000, uh, on a highly computerized aircraft, it was flying with the best computer chip technology that 1986 had to offer. And why was that? Because of the acquisition system, there was no easy way to leverage uh, the commercial advancements and insert parts, a uh, parcel into the larger uh, program. That obviously has been fixed since then, uh, but to me that was just highlighting a problem of, wow, there's a solution to this uh, that we, we should be able to leverage commercial technology for the modernization of the department. So I think, and that kind of highlights the process part of it. Um, you know, the acquisition reform, which the department's certainly getting after in some budget reform, uh, but then there's also the cultural part of it. Uh, and I think a big part there that we can work to get around is not just prototyping technologies, but prototyping methodologies, new ways of doing things, breaking out of the, the old uh, way that we do things and truly explore those new ways we do that. And we did that with a project called Kessel Run, where we started with uh, DevOps, uh, a tanker planning tool is what it was, was using, instead of a whiteboard that was uh, the entire length of a room, uh, we took in a concept of DevOps where we uh, were writing the code right alongside with the end user uh, to create that software. And that spawned off into Kessel Run. So in that case, we weren't necessarily prototyping a technology, but rather a methodology and a new way of doing business. And I think that's gonna be incredibly important to continue to allow that prototyping of methodologies uh, to come in and show the workforce and change the culture to adopt these new technologies. Anthony, you're out advocating, uh, evangelizing artificial intelligence in this community frequently. What are some of the hurdles that people bring up with you as, as resistance to it or say, oh, that's great, I get the vision, but here are my challenges in getting there? I, th I think a lot of it's related to what Mike has said, right? If you, it's this changing transformation thing. Um, because, you know, we have all kinds of tools across the federal government to, to help us get access to technology. So if you look at the work of the DIU, right, they've done all kinds of work relative to contracting and relationships with innovative companies and contracting methodologies like OTAs and, you know, and so much more. If you look at what um, Hondo Gertz is doing on the Navy side or Will Roper in the Air Force, I mean, there's, there's creative, innovative thinkers and tools that allow us to kind of get at this innovation thing. And, and you know, but there's still a lot of work to do. And so if you take AI, people will say, okay, I see 
AI being applied either here in the U.S. or in, in certain use cases around the globe or by all these big companies, they'll say, I see that. Um, go, I, I, get, I get the fact that the federal government has enormous amounts of data, which is super important, obviously. You know, they'll get, I need infrastructure tomorrow that's probably a little different than what I had built yesterday. So I got to address infrastructure. I got to address data. I got to apply it to the right use cases. And then I've got to understand who, where my talent is, data scientists. And, and like, so they'll kind of get that. And then oftentimes we get to this point where they say, well, what do I do now? Like, so if I understand all that, what do I do first or what do I do next? And this gets into this change and transformation thing. And so there's, there's a lot of aspects of this technology that, that where you could almost say, you know, it's not a technology challenge. This is a change and transformation challenge. And I've often said change and transformation is really hard. So for commercial companies, so, you know, at NVIDIA or, or, or any company, like if we we're going to go through a really big change and transformation effort, a lot of commercial companies will go hire the best people at that work leading change and transformation. And that's not exactly what the government does. Right. And so so I think there's this magic in what I call middle managers in government. It's a many of them have been there five or 10 or 20 years or 25 years. A lot of them own the budget you know, for their organizations. A lot of them own the systems that have been put in place for which they have to change. And so I think it's incumbent upon us as a community to work a lot with the middle managers on a changing transformation agenda that's set up for success. So, you know, because we got, you know, Suzette Kent often says, get, get, just get started now. Like, you know, so robotic process automation, it's kind of an easy place to get started to, to, to think about AI in, in the enterprise. But so people have to get started, but then they need a little help. I think they need help on on what to get started with. And then, you know, as Mike said, kind of the methodology or, you know, or we're going to help them pick the use cases and we got to set them up for success so that when they take on their first project, there's a good chance of success. Or if they fail, they learn. They learn quickly from that and continue to discover. Actually, Anthony, you know, an important point that might be worth discussing further that that uh, position of being okay with a failure when you try something, learn from it, and move on. In fact, I mean, there are no failures. That's been quoted many times. I don't remember who said it, that uh, 99 failures uh, weren't failures. It was just learning 99 ways not to do something. Uh, so I think that's an important point that is part of the culture, and that's a leadership issue of making it okay to, to fail, but learn from those mistakes and move on. And then look, let's face it, human nature resists change. Right, we all we all resist change, and then when you bring in an environment where it's often tied to people's identity, it makes it even worse in the in the workplace. Uh, so we have to change incentives also, uh, and encourage people to try those new things and reward uh, trying new things. Uh, and if they fail, they back up and try it a different way. So if if you're a program that is interested in uh, accelerating your uh, adoption of artificial intelligence or machine learning, what um, changes need to happen or, or prerequisites need to be there in terms of management and staffing in order to execute that. Can anybody do this or do you have to have the right talent or different talent to do it? Well, it certainly makes it easier if you have folks that, that view the world a little bit differently, that have no problem uh, breaking things and putting them back together. For us, as Anthony pointed out, we use other transaction authority, which is, it's been around since the 50s, but it really has not been used in practice uh, until very recently. 
And part of what we did is we started bringing in contracting officers from across the department uh, for an immersion with us for four months to really take on one of those projects and see it through to contract award so that they could understand the, the risk and the reward, take that back to their home unit and apply it there. But I think getting to your broader question, um, you know, we talk about things like AI, it, it really is a complete shift in the way we do things. Uh, we're gonna have to generate career fields uh, around data managers, data architects, uh, cleansing data and fully understanding those things uh, that, that builds a career field so we can build future leaders uh, that are steeped and have a background in those new uh, foundations that are going to support these technologies. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think that the chief data officers and the, the data analysts and, and, and how the government kind of addresses the, the enormity of the data that they have and how to get it in the position to use and what are the rights limitations and that that's just a huge area and they have to fi figure out how to do a whole bunch of that in-house because this technology transformation is so big and it will be in front of us for a long time that it's not one of those things we, we don't want to the government to outsource this one we want them to develop expertise internal um, across the federal government, in all the agencies, kind of at all levels to consider all use cases, and also uh, effectively partner with the commercial industry, as I said earlier, whether it's a defense con the industrial base or universities or startups and the like, because we have to do two things. We have to, we have to build institutional capabilities across the federal government, but we also have to go fast and get leverage and scale now. Right. So it's, it's one of the greatest technology transformations for a whole bunch of reasons. That's right, I love that idea. In fact, I think we need to develop a, a formalized, semi-permeable membrane to allow that talent to cross flow between the commercial sector and government. Because this is really a critical point. Uh, we're in a great power uh, competition era, and we think the tech race is the most important element of that. And it's not a whole of DOD solution or a whole of government, it's a whole of society. And so we need to be able to leverage those, that commercial expertise to bring it in and allow them to go back to the commercial sector uh, without uh, penalizing their advancement in their career. And the same thing for the government folks, to allow them to go do a maybe a three-year tour in the commercial sector and then come back to the government without uh, being penalized in their career progression as well to leverage technology both sides. And does, does DIU have any programs around that or, or pilots around that at all that can help with that model? We, people talk about that model a lot and say, well, we need to break down barriers between industry and government, but just I'm curious in your role and, and playing that role where you're trying to, you know, advocate for uh, in the adoption of commercial technologies, but also keep commercial technologists interested in government. Is there any role that DIU plays in that? You bet, absolutely. I described the role we played with the contracting officers and OTAs before, which is one way we do it. Another way is our, our very existence. We're headquartered in Silicon Valley with an outpost in Austin, Boston, and DC. And we staff our portfolios around our five tech focus areas with commercial execs from the Silicon Valley area. And interestingly, on the surface, you would think that, wow, we would have a difficult time attracting uh, Silicon Valley talent into uh, the government out there. And in fact, the opposite is true. Uh, we have folks that want to come and work with us. Uh, they like our mission, they embrace the mission set, uh, and they'll come in. We will benefit from their technology and uh, that they've developed or startups that they've developed or leadership roles that they've held in tech companies. 
Uh, they come and work for us, uh, teach other military folks and government folks, and then they go back out to the commercial sector. So it's a, it's a great uh, uh, model that we have, and we have no shortage of folks that want to come and work with us. Yeah, it is, it is a good model. And then some world-class thinkers, too. And if you go on and look at their website, you'll see you know, and how it's organized around the use cases and the talent and who owns it and their background. And it, it was, it's, it was, I thought it was, I thought the, the DOD or the Pentagon standing up that unit, you know, from how they wanted to address innovation and speed, um, as well as the work that was done for the, by the strategic capabilities office and, you know, trying to get going with AI and, and how that kind of became the Jake were, were two great models uh, for, for as pathfinders for change in the Department of Defense. I think they're two really good examples. And one example of that, up in our Boston office, we had an exec from iRobot uh, in the early days of DIU that came and worked for us for about three years. And so he brought all of that robotics expertise to our autonomy portfolio as we developed the drones and the robotic capabilities we're looking at. And since then, that individual has gone back out to the commercial sector, but remains closely tied to DIU. So. Whenever we're having large events up there, we were able to still leverage that that emerging commercial technology. So uh, our ability to leverage that never becomes stale as we keep up that network. Yeah, and just talking about how government can com- can um, access commercial technology. You know, Anthony, Nvidia is committed to offering powerful computing capabilities to support tech innovation, and you know is, is one of the leading companies in the world at doing that now. So for government program managers or technologists, what tools can they use and what levers can they pull to usher in workflow changes alongside AI and digital transformation? I mean, what, are they, what's, what advice do you have for them? Well, it, it's, a, it's a really great question and I'm not sure how much time we have for, for the answer to that one, but, but if you kind of look back at the infrastructure that we have in place today, uh, if, if we were gonna contemplate building infrastructure for tomorrow to address the artificial and challenge, artificial intelligence challenge or opportunity, we would, of course, never have built the infrastructure that we have in place today, right? So that's that's kind of one thing. That one of one of the challenges to the how fast AI has actually progressed was the the challenges with the the net CPU performance that you, that you were getting, you know, every year and the impact of Moore's law and 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 the like. And so, you know, GPUs have shown up on 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 stage, if you will, as as really capable of processing vast amounts of data, which is really important as we as the world builds out these neural networks. And we introduced the GPU 20 years ago. And so it's just shown up as, as an alternative to infrastructure that's in place today. Um, but we have to educate the marketplace on kind of what it is and where it fits best. And we have our programming environment, which is CUDA, which has allowed kind of the world to get access to these GPUs. And, and then, you know, and so a part of this, are, you know, you have all these AI frameworks and you have these stacks and toolkits and the like. And, and, and so just as we're trying to educate the marketplace on artificial intelligence and use cases for us at NVIDIA, we have to educate them on the hardware and software tools that we offer these AI developers as they, you know, as they begin their journey of building out the infrastructure for tomorrow, right? The infrastructure that makes sense for the application of artificial intelligence and use cases that that we all care about. Um, And so we spend a lot of time doing that. We do GTCs, our our GPU technology conference. Mike's spoken at it, but we have it here in DC. We have them in San Jose. 
Um, we we uh, have our, our Deep Learning Institute, our DLI Institute, where we work on, on training um, the, the developers for the tools that we have and how they may be applied. And then we do all kinds of other things relative to support of the developers. We have a developer program where we have a, you know, I think 1.5 million people in our developer program. Um, so like most big technology transformations, uh, the developers matter a lot. In AI, the developers matter, matter a lot. And so we've tried to come out with some programs to support the developers on the journey as they contemplate infrastructure, whether it's hardware or software that they need to advance you know, their, their capabilities here. Well, we're just about to wrap up, but I just wanted to open it up for any final thoughts you guys have uh, around the topic. Um, you know, Mike, what, what do you want to, what parting words do you have for us? So I think three things. Um, I think we need to continue the R&D investment. Um, the commercial sector outspends the government by about $250 billion per year. Uh, we need to leverage that. Uh, but the government needs to continue the R&D investment. Uh, second, we need to continue to lower barriers uh, to entry to the defense marketplace for these emerging tech companies, these non-traditional companies. We need to move at commercial speeds and recognize their requirements. We need to make the government a, a more sophisticated uh, partner uh, for those tech companies. And last, uh, in my mind, is reinvesting in ourselves. Uh, we need to reinvest in the STEM education at early ages. Uh, we need to look at the moon shots. We're starting to see those now going back to the moon and, and those larger plans. Uh, look, our windy adversaries have made their march to tech dominance very clear. Uh, they said it out loud. Uh, so we need to be aware of that and we need to win this uh, tech race in the air of great power competition. That's great. Anthony, any parting words? Well, I think Mike and I have both talked about the importance of teamwork in this journey, right? And it's, it's so important because because everybody, whether it's commercial industry, defense industrial base, and startups, and educa higher education, universities, we talk about, everybody plays a role in this journey. And, and we all, if we play our position really well, we can help the government go faster than they might go kind of on their own. So I think it's a, it's a team sport. The other thing is um, we kind of got to move from studying to doing. Right. There's the National Security Commission on AI and the RAND report and the, you know, uh, Bob Ward, the, the, the Center for New American Security. And I mean, there's all these reports and there's all these studies and these all these articles, uh, leaders in, you know, in Mike's organization, in the Pentagon, across the federal government have made clear that artificial intelligence is a national imperative. The use cases in, in, in many cases are obvious. And so we as a community have got to take action on the things that we know and, and, and help the government move forward faster. And I think to the extent that we can do that this year, you will be satisfied that we actually made a contribution to, to our country. I think that's a great place to wrap. I, I want to thank you, Anthony and, and Mike, for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. I'd also like to thank our listeners of this episode of the AI Tipping Point. The AI Tipping Point is a production of Government Executive Media Group's Studio 2G in collaboration with NVIDIA, NetApp, and WWT. If you like this episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, Google Play, or govexec.com slash podcasts. Thank you for listening to the AI Tipping Point podcast, brought to you by Worldwide Technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp. With so much potential on the horizon for AI, 
Let 2020 be your year to kick off or pump up deployment. Reach out today to learn more about how worldwide technology, NVIDIA, and NetApp can help your agency reach its full potential with AI.